previously on Brain Fuzz. The future scares me. The future sucks. Tim Schrager, collector, benefactor, yeah, community luminary with Lucite. I grew up in a house that was filled with some of the coolest art of the 20th century. If we didn't love it, we weren't buying it. We weren't concerned about what it was going to be worth someday. Lauren and I are in New York, and and I've always been a Tom Sachs fan. Somehow it comes up in conversation. I know that like you guys own some. What do you have of mine? I said, well, we got this piece, the French fry cone with all your tools. It's a McDonald's French fry, you know, container.、Mm-hmm. And instead of French fries, he has stuffed this thing with tools from his studio, even his eyeglasses. This is Brain Fuzz, the art, music, and culture podcast with Joe Camusa and Matthew White. In part two of this final conversation from their residency at the Temporary Art Center, Joe and Matthew continue their discussion with art collector and arts benefactor Tim Schrager. Be sure to catch part one, episode fifty-eight, and other episodes if you haven't already, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Or at brainfuzzpodcast.com. This is episode fifty-nine. And he said he actually said to us. He said that's one of the most important works of art I've ever made.、Uh, it's my self-portrait, and he said that piece was so important to me when I made it. I'm so glad that that you have that. And I said, yeah. I said, you know, people people love it. And I explain to them about they see the debaser on the tie clip, and I always point out to make sure they look behind the tie at the sack with the brass balls. And he says, "Oh, wait a second, those aren't brass balls." He says, "There's a titanium." <laughs> you come away from an experience like that with an appreciation of the process, and then an appreciation of the personality that's behind the work, and then that work is in your collection and is a reminder of that experience and that. Which leads me to another question that I've often heard, and that is why collect. There's an evolving answer to that question.、Um, when we started, I told you about how it started in the beginning. We had walls. We loved art. We wanted to surround ourselves with art,、um, and we wanted to live with the art. And in the beginning, and in the end, that is still the driving force. Living with the art, I think, is still that. That's what I learned. One of the most important lessons I learned from my dad.、Um, living with the art is, I think, probably the most important aspect of why we collect. Now things have changed over the years.、Um, when we started, I told you we started slow, we started small,、um, we started building our confidence, and and started looking further afar for art.、Um, but once the collection got to a point where okay, we don't really need. I mean, we're way beyond what we need as far as an art collection.、Mm-hmm. We're way beyond what we have room for. Yeah, I say storage must be your utmost. Yeah,、uh, I've been lucky that you know I I have had storage in the past. I have a little bit of storage now, but I've been I've been lucky enough that、um, between my house and my corporate office, I've been able to you know、mm-hmm. put almost everything. Almost you know like ninety plus percent of our collection is actually out on display. Um, and so that's been good,、um, but you get to a point where you start to question. You know, why are we still buying art? Well, there's a couple of there's a couple of answers. I don't know what the what the best answer is to that, but but the answers for us are that you know, number one, the collection,、um, you know, the collection has a life of its own. And I sort of feel that if we stop, if we stop buying art, if we stop looking for 
the next emerging artist, which I'm not, I don't look at that the same way that I did 20 years ago because I don't feel like I have to buy pre-emerging mm-hmm. artists mm-hmm. before, you know, when they're, they just walked out of school with their MFA. I'm okay not being in the first round of buyers that, that is buying that's, that, that type of work. Um, uh, but, you know, the collection, it's taken on a life of its own. And, and, and if you don't feed it, um, I don't want to say it, it, it's going to die, but it could become stale. And so I feel like from that perspective, um, that's been one of the driving forces as to why we're still buying art. But I think, I think maybe more importantly, um, it's, we've reached a point now where we're not just collecting, we're, we're collection building. And to what end is the complicated answer? Um, because we don't know exactly what the future of the collection is. But I guess in the back of my mind, I'd like to think that at least some portion of our collection is going to want to end up at a place like the High Museum. Mm-hmm. And, and that we are collecting a little differently than the way Michael Rooks is being uh, is able to collect at at the High Museum, and I'm just using him, as, you know, the curator for contemporary art at the High Museum for all your listeners who mm-hmm. don't know that. Um, and in the High Museum, even though it's the 800 pound gorilla art institution in the city, mm-hmm. it has limitations. Michael is hamstrung from time, you know, you know, time after time on what he's able to acquire um, for his department. And so I, I really believe that, that the collecting we're doing is going to fill, it will potentially fill a void at the High Museum someday, mm-hmm. if that's what we decide to do with the collection. Um, I don't know that we'll ever, our collection will ever reach the point where it'll be one of these types of collections that'll justify its own building. That's my favorite coffee conversation yeah. with you is always, you know, whether it's Wheeland or Margulies or... Yeah. You know, when you start talking about the super collectors down in Miami that we all know and, and love, and I know you guys have had uh, experiences with Marty Margulies. He's a great guy. Uh, <laughs> yes, he is. He's, he's a very... He's an interesting guy. Um <clears throat> I met Marty, uh, my dad, my dad knew Marty and my dad introduced me to him and, and I have since now, you know, sort of have my own kind of, you know, I, I don't even know if I'd call it a relationship with Marty, but, uh, I've been to his condo in Key Biscayne a few times. It's the most incredible condominium filled with art you will ever set foot in. Um, obviously he's got his, his warehouse building, um, in Miami um, and he's got an incredible collection. Uh, and then, and then you've got De La Cruz. The Rubel collection is over 7,000 works of art. You know, I mean, it's, it's just a whole different kind of thing. And, and I don't know that, um, I don't know if that's the path I'm going down. Well, you could, you could do it your own way. I mean, you started off asking about like, where do you start collecting? And I immediately thought of the Vogels. You know, and yeah. it's like you buy what yeah. you can, what you like, yep. what you can afford. And, you know, sure, you might want a de Kooning, but you can't afford it. So, you know, and what if they were getting into, like, um, Tuttle and, mm-hmm. you know, folks like that when it was affordable. Mm-hmm. But uh, Well, the Vogels are a whole different story. I mean, they ended up with 4,500 works of art in a one-bedroom apartment. Yeah, that's what's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's an a unbelievable story. You have story. to... It, Anyone who hasn't seen that documentary, you should see it. Yeah, it's very touching. It, it is. It is. Um, that's a good example of a collection that's very specific. It's uh, it, it's it's limited by time, the theme, you know what what we're what we're collecting. But what you were saying about an eclectic collection, one of the challenges is okay. You may get started in a direction, but then if you don't continue, and it may have been you that told me this, it's like a time capsule yeah, in a bad way. Now, their collection, that's not, that's 
a time capsule in a good way. But there is something about it, it becoming stale. And I would think that one of the ways that you can combat that is through rotation and rotating works. How does so? How does that work? When when I think about the Rubel, and one of the reasons, I mean, I wanted to I wanted to see the new space this time. But one of the good things there, I think, of having the new space is that they were forced to move some things around. Yeah, well, they did, and it, and this year's presentation was was very different from what they've done in the past. You know, in their old building, it seemed like every year, you know, we'd go down to Miami, and they would put on a show. And they would pick, you know, a typical year, they might pick like five artists that they gave solo rooms to. Um, and then some of the stuff, like that Katie Nolan beer can piece, is mm-hmm. never going to go anywhere. Yeah, right. Yeah. For whatever reason, yeah. they, they, they love that so much that that's always going to be out on display. They got a couple others that are always out on display that, that uh, don't sit so well with uh, my wife. Um. <laughs> yeah, some of them I don't, I don't need to see again. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but this year, it felt more like going to a museum, to like a legit museum. Like, yeah. like uh, there were no necessarily, uh, not that they didn't have multiple works out by the same artist, but it, it just, the space is, is um, there's some giant rooms with huge ceilings, and you just don't understand, you can't really grasp the scale of some of the work they have. Uh, we walk into this one room, and I don't know how big the room is. Uh, I don't know how many thousands of square feet this one room is. And there's this Kahinda Wiley painting. And you walk up, uh, and, and you see it from across the room, and you walk up and you look at the wall plaque, and you see that the painting is like 14 feet tall and 28 feet wide. Something, you know, of that yeah. scale. And it's like, Wow. From across the room, I wouldn't have guessed it was that big, <laughs> but but that's that's the scale of some of the things they have. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to get your head around the scope of managing something like that, yeah. and then staffing it for a week like in in Miami. Well, we've got some of that stuff in this building right now. I mean, I think if you look at Michi's paintings, uh-huh. you know, take those things down from this space. Yeah, where where are you going to find a space big enough to hang them? Right. Um, and they're they're not even you know they're not huge, Mm-mm. but kind of looking at it right now. Yeah, I, I mean, mean that's going to be challenging. And then lighting it. What about like the ones that get away? We had the pleasure of <laughs> being in Chicago with you and uh, Hot Dog Man Tony Tassa. <laughs> that's right. I, I, I saw you <laughs> in serious distress. Yeah, <laughs> you're like it's never going to fly in the house. Yeah. <clears throat> You know, Hot Dog Man was that was pretty remarkable, wasn't it? Oh, it's amazing! <laughs> and talking about balls, yeah, those were some very specific. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Tony Tassett's an artist that I've sort of been in love with ever since that trip, and have have never acquired any of his work, um, primarily because of the scale of it. Uh, but I've got my eye on. I've st- I've been looking at it, and I'm I'm still toying around with the idea. Uh, of buying something of his uh, for the outdoors. Uh, yeah, I just loved how that thing had it's like it was its own garage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was well. That's and then going back to our conversation with Drew Conrad. Um, if that's in your studio, I mean, hopefully you know you, you sell that one day. But yeah, at what point are you just a steward for that piece until right. you find you know the right buyer? Thing was massive. It was big. It was big. Yeah, and he's created some other large scale works. Um, he's got that eyeball piece that's outdoors, Tony Tassett, you know, yeah, that's yeah, what I'm talking yeah, yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's in Dallas. It's, it's just, it's an incredible piece. It's, I don't know how big it is. It's like probably about 20 feet in diameter. Yeah. Okay. So outdoor sculptures, <laughs> that's a whole nother set of challenges. Yeah. And, and I know you've said in the past that I think you said you wanted to do more outdoor sculptures, but. Yeah, I, I do want to do more outdoor stuff. Um, and not because I'm out of wall space. I just I love the idea of outdoor sculpture, yeah. um, but it's challenging. It's it's you know it's really expensive for one. It's very costly to do, um, and it's hard to find the right place to do it. Um, I did get involved with Art on the Beltline a few years back. Um, they 
they do a show every year where they pick about you know 50 artists from 300 submissions um but i don't i've never quite understood how they do this they they literally have a budget of like $5,000 a piece. So for a quarter of a million dollars, they're getting these artists who I guess are so eager to be a part of this show that at whatever expense it is to them, um, they are willing to participate. And some of the work is already work that they've made that they want. They probably just want to get out of their yard or Mm -hmm. some of the work is probably made just for the show. And then every year, the Beltline tries to set aside enough money to buy one or two things that get permanently placed on the Beltline. And over the years, they've been able to, you know, accumulate um, several items, several sculptures that are out on the Beltline now, and it's great. You know, it's really awesome. Um, So taking, you know, sort of following their lead, I have a property that's over on the East Side Trail, and there was this little island that um, that they had been using uh, to put a temporary piece on every year. And it was happened to be just immediately adjacent to a building that I had just built. And I went to the Beltline and I said, I want to I buy a sculpture and put it here permanently because this spot needs something permanent. And of course, what happened next was a little unpleasant because I got exposed to this uh, whole process of, yeah, no, you can't, you can't just buy a sculpture and put it there. It's public property. There's, there's a process. <laughs> so, you know, a year and a half later, um, I had commissioned this sculpture that uh, had to go through this whole process. Um, and it turned out, in the end, other than the fact that it took so long uh, to do, to get, you know, to accomplish. In the end, it was great. We put out a call. I think we got about 56 submissions, um, wow. mostly from the area, mm-hmm. but some some of them, because I had encouraged people to apply, mm-hmm. you know, to send stuff in from other parts of the country. Um, and, and then, you know, unfortunately, the decision wasn't left up to me it was left up to a committee um which in you know i said in the end it all worked out great Mm -hmm. uh the the committee was formed um the committee went through all the submissions narrowed it down voted and chose a piece um and and the piece that we chose is out on the on the belt line now and it's it's really a great piece it's monumental. It wasn't what I envisioned was going to be there when I started on this. But the Beltline people convinced me that it wanted to be something really monumental. And I was thinking more it wanted to be something that everybody on the Beltline would stop and take their picture in front of. You know, I was thinking more Instagram, uh, like like yeah. if you're down in Miami yeah. and you're in front of the Bass Museum yeah. and the Hugo Rondononi Mountain, yeah. you know that thing is both monumental and it mm-hmm. shows up in a thousand Instagram photos. You know, I was thinking something that was more human scale that people would want to stop and take their picture in front of, and 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 as it turns out, I got persuaded and was convinced that this was the right thing to do, and I think in the end it was. The piece has been up there now for a few years. Yeah, I love it. Um, it's cool. Um, it's, uh, uh, it definitely gets photographed. It's got, it's got a really interesting visual aspect to it that the Beltline, I think the thing that maybe sold me on it was the Beltline is, you know, you're moving on the Beltline. The Beltline is is a very, um, uh, an area that has tons of foot traffic, bike traffic, skateboard traffic, scooter traffic. So you're moving on the Beltline. There's a lot of movement on the Beltline. It's not static at all. And this piece, the coolest thing about the piece is the visual aspect of it as you're moving past it. And it's, it's really cool as you're going by it and what you see looking through it. Um, and then there's also the aspect of it that there's a stone in the center of it, a little stone bench that you can sit and if it's quiet, it's, you, know, you can go in there and meditate if you wanted mm-hmm. to. 
This is great that you bring this up because something that we don't talk about very often is just the difficulty in the economics of the, of the situation for creators, for artists. Because uh, in this case, there's a call. You, you said, what, five grand a piece or whatever. Right. Well, you pay for the materials. Yeah, so the argument that gets made is, well, but you think about the exposure. And we hear this all the time, think about the exposure. Um, You know, going back to your story about Tom Sachs, I mean, you think about all that goes into the creation of work and then the the fact that you might have to have, of course, these are different levels. But um, I think people that are looking at collecting uh, and people outside of the art world don't always understand some of the price tags they see. But they don't understand what goes into, you know, all of the all of the failed experiments, all of the exposure opportunities. Right. You know, it's um, it's tricky for artists. It's a and, lot of working for free. Yeah. You know, let's and, and what's the fun in that? I mean, really, I mean, it's well, is it? It's kind of hope, I think. You know, it's that it's going to lead to the yeah. next thing. Um, yeah. So I think that's where you get that buy-in. You know, and or sometimes I think there's folks that maybe don't have that business acumen and suddenly it's oops i had no idea i had to pay for the trucking and yeah. it's, you know all those extra yeah. things where, where am i going to put the dumpster where is the you know there's those gotchas <laughs> yeah. that one of the things that comes to mind is is uh our friend Stuart Rodner will reference him again you know so much of what i learned about how to do something like this show uh-huh. i learned from Stuart. My involvement over at Atlanta Contemporary Arts Center was, you know, invaluable. What I mm-hmm. learned working there yeah. as chair of the board, being on the board, working with you, Matthew, on the board there. Uh, and some of my fondest memories of being involved in the arts are from, are from working with Stuart on things over yeah. there. But what you just, Joe, you reminded me of his show that he did, and I think he's done this more than once, The Day Job show uh-huh. yeah. I think he had done it maybe you remember the history of that he had done it somewhere else yeah. I think and this was like day job maybe mm-hmm. revisited or part two whatever but the, the beauty of that show was that it exposed in in a very I, I don't I think you know in a good light that there's these artists that are making this these great works of art but they have no way of supporting themselves making this art. So yeah. they all had day jobs. Right. And and it was sort of fascinating to learn about what these artists were doing during the day. And sometimes for some of the artists, you guys might remember better than I can, you can tell me exactly who I'm talking about, where there was a direct correlation to what they did eight hours a day and then went to their studio and made mm-hmm. artwork. Mm-hmm. And some of them had nothing to do with any of it. You know, like mm-hmm showing work um, and not as an artist um, and doing things, Joe, like you alluded to, you know, that you're doing for with, you know, no financial benefit. You know, after a while, it it becomes so challenging. I'm sure artists start to question about, you know, whether or not it's worth it and whether or not they can keep toiling. And and so for for me, um, you know, a little bit a little bit more about the the collecting and the and <clears throat> and how this all plays into this is that you know in the beginning part of the collecting was about supporting artists um, that had something to do with it and it, of course it still does but you know when the collection gets to the size that ours is now which again is not one of these super collections it's still it's still very modestly sized, you know, compared to those. How many works are we talking about? If you just ballpark, though. Well, we're into the low hundreds. Okay. Okay. So. Yeah. You know. So it's you know it's it's significant, but mm-hmm. the reality is, is that we can't buy enough work to support artists in the way that Lauren and I want to support artists. <laughs> yeah. You know, you just you can't. Yeah. Right. And and so. <clears throat> That is one of the reasons why, when Nancy Solomon decided that I should meet Stuart Harodner, uh, this is about 12 years ago, um, because Stuart was going to be doing things over at Atlanta Contemporary Arts Center that she thought I would get a kick out of, um, you know, Stuart and I end up 
at Tuk Tuk having lunch with a couple of other people. And the next thing you know, you know, I'm telling these people, I'm so committed right now. I don't have time for another board. I don't have time mm -hmm. for another job. Mm -hmm. I'm really busy. I'm like, well, you know what? We think that you might make a really good board member and we'll give you the, you know, the benefit of the doubt um, that you don't have time for this, like you're telling us, because I, I don't want to, I don't join boards just to join a board to do nothing, as you may have seen firsthand. Yes. <laughs> so I only, I only, I am only on boards that I can really throw myself into and really get behind and that I believe in the mission of the organization and that I'm going to spend time helping. Well, it didn't take very long for me to realize that of all the other things that I was involved in at the time, there was nothing like the Atlanta Contemporary Arts yeah. Center and hanging around with Stuart Rodner. Yeah. And so it was like hook, line, and sinker. I threw myself into it. Stuart and I got to be very you know, good friends. And it was anything I could do to help him was, was what my mission was back then when I was the, you know, a young board member. And, and so I realized that um, even though it wasn't necessarily going to be a direct uh, help to artists by buying artwork from artists in Atlanta, I think that I had somewhat of an influence, although I never realized, and then Stuart tried to convince me later. He says, what are you talking about? All the conversations you and I had totally influenced some of the things that were going on at Atlanta Contemporary Arts Center. We, we me, always had this belief that if, if we could bring in, a, if we were doing a group show and we could pair somebody locally with people from out of town mm -hmm. who already had name recognition, that that might help that artist, um, you know, gain some recognition and maybe they would sell some work. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, there was the studio artist program that you guys are very familiar with out back. Lauren and I have been huge supporters of that. And that's always been, I think, a really important aspect oh, yeah, of, of our support of Atlanta Contemporary Art Center is because of that studio artist program. So we've tried to figure out ways without collecting more artwork, mm -hmm. um, you know, how to help artists. But it's it's challenging. But this, this you know, reminds me, you guys you guys remember when Michelle Grabner came to town? Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So she was curating the, the Whitney Biennial. Mm -hmm. Right. And... It was really sort of, it was eye-opening. Yeah. It was disappointing at the same time with her because she basically sat on the stage at Atlanta Contemporary Arts Center across from Stewart doing an artist, doing the talk, mm -hmm. and said that I only have so much bandwidth of travel I can do and she was from Chicago, and I'm pretty sure if you go back and look at who made the Whitney Biennial that, yep. Biennial that year, it was very heavily weighted more than ever. But that's always towards this where, where yep. she came from. And if the curators are New York-based, it's all New York, and it's not just, I mean, we get that. People put in who they know, but... Yeah. Yeah. But that place, that room was packed. There were people like I've never seen back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that day. Like, what are you doing here? <laughs> well, again, thank you for everything that you do. This would not have happened without you. And I can think of a number of things in this town that would not uh, have happened uh, without you and your support. And um, yeah, weather collecting, uh, board service, you know, it's, it's, it's so important. And it's, you know, artists, often complain about lack of support uh, in, in and you're, I, we're always going to have that I think rightfully so yes but then there's also the sheer number of it and, and it's you know and unfortunately market forces and yeah. supply and demand well, also play a role but nobody's figured out yeah. the right model for how to support artists um, I, I really believe that there's still you know there's great awards that are being given out right um, but it's not enough. What there's, what there's not enough of, there's a lot of awards, and, and Lauren and I support organizations that are giving out awards, but there's not enough awards um, where it can really sustain an artist over a period of time. And by period of time, I'm not talking about a lifetime. Right. But uh, what, what's the award 
that pays out over like five years, like you know. It's either Guggenheim or the MacArthur. It's, it's the MacArthur. Okay, it's not the Guggenheim is great. That's a one. I think it's a one time, and we know some Guggenheim winners yeah. now. Mm-hmm. We yep. had a couple recently. They did brain fuzz. The next thing you know, I'm yeah. telling you, it's a platform. <laughs> it's a platform. It's a launching pad. Yeah. A launching pad. So that was great to see Amy Pleasant and Craig Drennan win the Guggenheim Award. That's a significant award. Uh, but the MacArthur Award is the one that pays an artist tens of thousands of dollars a year for five years, I believe. That can really change an artist's life. Sure. You know, that can really allow an artist to really focus on their art um, and not have to worry about if they're going to be starving or not or they're right. going to be able to pay their rent. So, so that, those, those kind of awards are too far and few between. Um, but that also gets back to the old like Renaissance model of the patron, yeah, yeah. And the guilds, yeah, yeah. Where where is this happening though? Where you know, there's these, you know, the, all these like in New York, sure, there's an amazing collector base. Yeah. But there's still like I can't imagine all those artists in, in Williamsburg alone are, are being sustained. Oh, no, they're not. So they're not. I mean, I, just, I start thinking back, like you know, like in Atlanta, for instance. I think like you know who's buying the bulk of the work? I'm sure you do, but it's like it's the corporate, it's all these new buildings, it's the stadiums. I mean. That's kept the lights on for a lot of people, I'm sure. Those are the people that are thriving. You know, I think most artists, it's like, you know, think back to your days playing music in college. You know, you start over every year. You can have a great year, and then it's like, okay, now what? Um, I mean, that. I guess this conversation comes up, you know, daily, no matter who you're talking with about art. And I'm always thinking, it's obviously, it's a choice. And maybe that is that brutal market reality of, like, survival of the fittest or you have the day job and uh, I'll never forget one of the great things from that show also Nina Kachadorian was here and spoke Yeah, and she was talking because I think everyone wants to have the studio and be a full time professional artist and she was up there saying I actually am more productive when I have a day job that has nothing to do with art and I think that was good for people to hear. Like, it's okay. It Yes. You know? like, In fact, it informs the work, and it can diversify your Maybe you make better work because you have yes. less time, and you're going to make better, quicker decisions. That is also and, true. Mm, yeah. I don't know. A little but, more focus. Um, but I think it's great, though, that, you know, again, uh, that there are folks like yourself that are out there thinking creatively, how do I support this ecosystem? And, like, it, this Atlanta would not be where it is right now without what you... I mean, putting your... your time and effort and you know you've got kids you've got a successful company like I don't know how the hell you fit it in but you do because you want to but uh, one, one more thing that we should we should get out in this conversation there are cities all across yes. the country that have this same problem with yes. artists um, there's really only a few nodes in America where there's a thriving gallery scene so when you talk about you know when thinking about how we've talked about some of these galleries that have that have uh, been around for decades that have been able to sustain themselves and so many that haven't that have closed um, that this is a common problem and I I doubt that it, that uh, you hear a much different story from people in New York where there is a thriving scene you you you'd get somebody who tried to open up a gallery in New York and give you the same story you hear about Atlanta. So it's challenging everywhere. But once you get past New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, maybe San Francisco, maybe there's four four nodes, you know, where where galleries are really thriving and have been thriving for years. You know, past that, it's tough. It's a tough world. You know, we talked about Miami. You You go to these art fairs and you walk around and you're like, how is everybody in this world not rich, making <laughs> making a killing? Because the prices they're asking for yeah. this artwork is just crazy um, in some cases. Uh, and it's, it's just so funny to listen to people justify the $120,000. I'm going to go back and bash the banana and the, and the duct tape. Um, but <laughs> it's not just that. I mean, I felt like this year... Lauren and I are walking around the art fair, and everything's fifty thousand dollars. Everything we're looking at is fifty thousand dollars, fifty thousand, eighty thousand. You know. Oh, there's definitely an inflation that I've seen, and then there's also the economic realities of being a gallery and throw putting a fair presence together. Yeah. Well, that's what a lot of the gallery system has become now. 
Mm-hmm. Is the fairs are more important than the, you know, than the physical space back in New York. Um, and not everybody's bought into that, but a lot of the galleries have, and a lot of the galleries now, their, their lives revolve around mm-hmm. going from fair to fair, continent to continent, you know, country to country. I mean, can you imagine? Do you, think oh, yeah. we're, do you think we're anywhere close to, like, peak, peak fair or getting close to where it's not going to be a thing anymore? I uh, can, can I... Matthew, you take You have one. the floor. <laughs> what if we have already reached peak gallery and the fair is the next step in the evolution? Well, I think we're there. I can tell you what I see from my travels is, is uh, which I could be totally wrong. Um, let's go. Let's step back for a moment and talk about retail in general. Because in the end, for these galleries, art's a business, and if they're not selling, they're closing. Yeah. And so, Amazon, um, you know, sort of ruined the retail world. And uh, interesting, you know, how people, some people took to shopping online. And other people like me really didn't. I still believe in the idea of walking into a store. I like the social interaction. I don't like shopping online. doesn't mean that the UPS and FedEx truck aren't stopping at my house once a day because <laughs> other people in my house are shopping online. But I don't, I don't enjoy it. And, you know, I want to go over to Pont City Market and go into that denim store and buy a pair of jeans. Um, but... Uh, you know, the art world, I think, is going to be very challenged to reach that level of, of that, you, that you're not going to need stores anymore. And by the way, there's, there's a whole study uh, that's been done, multiple studies about the future of retail. And nobody really believes that retail stores are going to vanish there's still a place for them. And I could tell you all sorts, I could tell you some stories about what I've learned about that world from my real estate development business, but we don't want to talk about that. (laughs) Not today. That'll be part two. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. So art galleries, uh, I think are never going to reach the point where they can give up that physical space. I don't think. I don't want them to. No, it'd be horrible. I mean, you need to it'd see the horrible. work in person, but um... I think I think that what's happened. Your question, Matthew, about art fairs, is I I feel like there was a peak that already occurred. You remember what? Remember what year it was? Whatever, however many years ago we went to Miami, and there were literally. I don't think I'm exaggerating. I'm just going to use the number twenty. Maybe it was eighteen. Art fairs. Mm. You had the Basel Fair, which, by the way, wasn't the original one. It was Art Miami. That's correct. It's been around for like 30 years. Yes. Basel people over in Switzerland saw something there, I think, 18 years ago and decided that it'd be an ideal place to do a fair. And, And after two or three years, and I was lucky enough to, I didn't know, I didn't go year one. Uh, but I was there year two, three, four. I've been there every year but one year since. So I've watched this happen. But somewhere, I want to say around year eight, nine, ten, so ten years ago, there were like 18 or 20 satellite fairs. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was out of control. I want to say that this year, and I didn't do an exact count, maybe you know, that there were only about eight or nine fairs in total, I think, maybe ten. So I, I think it's... You think it's higher? Uh, yeah. And and what I also noticed this year was that there was an expansion of existing ones. So that they they would have the fair, but then they would have... And our... I mean, look at the what they did with the Basel. That, with, uh, what was it? Mediate. Meridian. What was it? Meridian. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm Mediator. Not, I'm, not, I'm not counting that as a separate fair. But you see... But you can see that expansion, yeah. that concept of it's only getting bigger and it's yeah. only, you know... To me, there was a year where it was it was no longer pleasant to be in the traffic, and that's for me when I took a little break. 
Yeah, um, we spent more time trying to like, yeah. get to Winwood, and you're like, you know, yeah, that, uh, yeah. And then once you got to Winwood, good luck because it's just wall to wall people. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I had some interesting conversations this year about people that didn't have a space, but were there at the fair, and one day might decide to have a space. And that that was the first time I've had that conversation. So, yeah, I, I felt like Miami was a little calmer this year. I wasn't there for very long. Um, I didn't get to go for very long this year, but uh, I felt like the Basel Fair was a little less crowded, maybe because the convention center is a lot bigger now. Um, I still love going to the Nada Fair. The Nada Fair has got an energy that none of the other fairs have. It's it, You know what? And it was better this year, I thought. I thought it was even better than it's been in the past. Did you? Uh, I've really in, I've enjoyed the Nada Fair so much the last few years. I, I I think it's been pretty consistent, but it's got, if you go, you go for the opening at 10 o'clock on Thursday morning when it opens, it's frenetic. I mean, it's just, it's just got this vibe to it that you just don't feel anywhere else. Yeah. Um, the tents are, you know, I don't want, I don't have anything negative to say about any of the other fairs. The tents are fun. You know, it's fun to go to Untitled out on the beach, walk through the sand and go to the fair. Mm -hmm. um, Untitled's grown. It has. It, and it almost doesn't look like Untitled anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think it's grown in stature, too. I well, mean, that's I true. I don't really yeah. know. I don't know the economics of any of these fairs, but it, fe it feels like Untitled is is now one of the, you know, up in, if you're going to rank them, is right up there near the top now. Yeah. As yeah. far as the quality of what they're doing and, yeah. and the people that are going to it. So, what, what haven't we covered? I have one question. <laughs> You know, I, I, maybe I'm of a time of this model of like the artist and the and and real estate in terms of. Do you still think that's an, a sustainable option for certain artists? Like in Atlanta, are there places for artists either to band together and you know buy the buildings and and divide it up? You know, does that does that model still look like there are artists in New York that I'm aware of? I guess the only way they've been able to make it is yeah. so they they were smart. They obviously had capital. However, they made it happen. Um, do you think, are there areas, I'm literally asking like ge geographically, like where is that? It's obviously not anywhere around here, or the west side. I mean, it seems yeah. like East Point, College Park, Westview. It... It's, I don't want to just say no, because that would be like so discouraging. <laughs> Um, but no. It would be so challenging. You know, it's it really, it's just, it, it's all about whether or not a group of artists could scrape together enough money to do it. Um, I think it would be really difficult. Um, but it, I wouldn't say it's impossible. You'd have to have, you'd have to have some capital. I mean, you can't, the, the days of, Picking up a building for a hundred thousand dollars and and you know spend another hundred thousand dollars to get it inhabitable, right? And having enough space to have you know five or six artists all share it. Now, you're you're competing with a, a real estate development community that is scouring every corner of the metropolitan area for the next building they can buy and rehab. Or tear down, um, so I think it's going to be really challenging. But even getting out, you know, away. Yeah, sure. Yeah, how far do you want to go? I, I don't know, but I'm just you know Matthew and I always talk about that. You know, uh, I remember when folks moved to Brooklyn, that seemed like you know might as well have been Jersey. That wasn't where people wanted to be, but yeah. it was affordable. Yeah. You know, like if you listen to Brian Alfred, you know, when, when he, and he's always talking about Williamsburg and describing it, you know, when it was sleepy, you know, I mean, some of those streets, you know, they're, yeah. you'd have a, up until recently, yeah. there was a monument shop on the corner still, right. you know, but as here's, headstones, you mm -hmm. know, like not anymore. But. Here's another problem in Atlanta that, that is somewhat unique to Atlanta, um, is that Atlanta has never had a whole lot of love for old buildings. And I really, it's easy for me to say this because I'm not from here. So I came here from, you know, the Midwest, California. <laughs> Matthews, Bristolin. Uh Here we go. And, and when I got here, <laughs> you know, 
know, it was kind of like Sherman's fault. It, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's this mindset that nothing is worth saving. And you guys know this, that what really changed this whole dynamic in Atlanta was when some asshole wanted to tear down the Margaret Mitchell house. And it wasn't until then. And I, so I came here in the mid eighties and nothing was sacred. And by the way, I challenge you to go around Atlanta and find buildings that predate 1900 because there's very few of them. I happen to own one of them, the parish restaurant on North Highland Avenue um, is a building that was built in 1895. It's one of the oldest buildings that. in the city. I did not know that. It was an office building for yeah. the steel mill. Uh, Rhodes Hall, obviously. It's one of the oldest buildings in the city. So, But there's very, very few. I'm sure there's a list. There's maybe more than I realize. I'm sure there's a list. But I challenge you to go find you know, pre-1900 buildings. And one of the reasons, it's not just because of Sherman, but we're going to come to him in a minute, <laughs> there was there was the, the the great fire. That's that true. Torch. That is true. Yeah. All of the Virginia Highland neighborhood. That's true. And my very first house that I bought was built in 1915 on mm. Barnett Street in Virginia Highland. And that house was uh, just this classic old house, but it was 1915. Mm-hmm. So, and that was one of the oldest homes. I bought another house in Brookwood Hills. That was built in the 1920s that I bought and renovated and sold. Um, that was an old house. So the problem is that the city doesn't have this stockpile of classic old buildings that are still standing. Mm-hmm. And some of the buildings, unfortunately, like this building we're sitting in right now, is so far beyond its useful life that, um, that you know... It's it's hard to save them. It's cheaper to tear it down and build again than it's, to... Yeah, and it's not even that it's cheaper. Of course it's cheaper, for sure. Is it worth saving? Um, so I see architect... Just me as an uh, outsider, I look at it, I see architectural elements that I would like to see preserved and worked somehow into... But we've had conversations like this before. Um, you know, I see that, and I see maybe a plan for that, but somehow... Either that's not good enough for some for some people. Well, like Pont City is a classic example. You know, right. People either love it or hate it. Yeah. And there seems to be a lot of hate. And it's like, well, at least they saved it. I think they did. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate yeah, what right. they did with yeah. it. They did. It was a monumental effort on their part. Yeah. And the only reason why it happened is because of the amount of public assistance they got. And, you know, that that is what allowed them to save that building. And that would have been tragic for that building to come down. It's the largest brick structure in the southeastern United States. That building is 2 million square feet. And it got, luckily, it fell into the right hands. And what they did with it, you know, like like you said, love it or hate it, it's just, luckily, they saved it. It's a a changing landscape. Um, You know, I'd like to think that there, there will be studio space that will be affordable for artists um, in the future, but it's going to be a challenge for the community. Well, for listeners, and for, I would recommend revisiting Craig Drennan's, our conversation with Craig Drennan, because he made some really good points about how a community can have that a thriving scene like that, studio scene. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, you're talking, when he was specifically talking about Soho, mm-hmm. but again, think about that was the 70s. And think about what, I mean, New York City was practically bankrupt. So, and again, you had building yeah. after building after building. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, it, it was a good point, but it's, you know, compared to here. I mean, I'd like to think, even like losing Athens as an example, like there's, it's not cost effective there either necessarily mm-hmm. studio wise, you know, you'd like to think you still have to go out. Yeah. And I think they're, you know, artists usually are pioneers, but yeah, you know, we're in a car town. How, how uh, willing are you to? Yeah. But uh, Joe, Joe, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the history of New York is incredible. The artists were the pioneers. That's another, there's the suckers. Yeah. See? <laughs> yeah. The problem is, is that they didn't own their space. You know, they rented or they squatted. Um, but 
There's there's this other the smart great ones owned. You yeah, know, you think of Donald Judd. What would that building cost nowadays? Yeah, yeah, it's worth millions. It's worth millions. There's this really cool podcast I listened to. I can't remember for the life of me what it was, but these who I don't even remember who was in it. But they got in a car and they started driving around New York, around, down around Soho mm -hmm. and the Lower East Side, and it was like this whole history of who used to be in what building. Oh, oh, wow. Oh, my God. That's fascinating. It, it, was, uh, it was unreal. It was just unbelievable. The concentration. Yeah. And, by the way, there weren't that many artists back then. So, that was, you know, it was a whole different world. That's, that's true. And that's another that's conversation that we've had. You know, another... like, are we peak artists? Because I think they're also... Be maybe you don't need to be, quote, professional and have a studio space that you can't afford. Well, it goes back to this is like any other business. The barrier to entry is pretty low. Yeah. yeah. No, that's true. That's true. Which there's there's no it's like Warren Buffett talks about. There's no moat around <laughs> the the world of being an artist. It's like, you know, it's like like, you know, go ahead and, you know, use me as a punching bag for a minute. Go back to when I just went out to the art store and bought brushes and paints and yeah. blinds and said, "Yeah, hey, I'm going to be a painter." <laughs> I was just smart enough to there's realize I wasn't with that. <laughs> yeah. But then but then you Realized this isn't for me, and you know. And now I think the argument I hear is that if you know you're in debt, student loans, you, you know, and then you've got to afford on top of paying those loans, you've got to um, pay for your space. But anyway, to cover all of that, and then you think I really do. This is my career, you know, and maybe a little too late to rethink that. I don't know. <laughs> you're looking at me. What are you saying? No, I'm no. I was just going back to what you were saying. It's it's. Um, Someone has established their identity. I am this, and I'm paying. I'm reminded monthly by this payment, <laughs> by my loan payment. I don't know. It's uh, it's that was another challenge that those guys didn't have when you said there were fewer artists. Yeah, that the the arts industrial complex had not quite gotten to yeah. that. But people, it, it's still like it's it's got to be the work first and foremost. Yeah, and you, you know, you think of whether even someone like. Willem de Kooning, and it's like, you know, there were a lot of lean years there mm -hmm. uh, That's when true. he was on 14th Street and making this work that nobody really wanted to see. That, that was a story with all of them. Jackson Pollock. Sure. Yeah. Couldn't sell a thing. Uh, Ended on a high note how about, here. How about Van Gogh? <laughs> well, what... <laughs> You started this with uh, Future Sucks, isn't that what you... I think I did. Yeah. <laughs> future is scary, but... Um... Well, thank thank you again, and thanks for coming by today. Thanks for having me. Oh, we've, we've been wanting to do this for, for a while. Um, it's an honor to be here. Well, <laughs> we're going to put a little Joe Jackson on the turntable and uh, turn the on-air light off. All right. It's starting to sound like uh, this old house. So like, I know I'm here. It's going to tear, tear down these stairs. And uh, let's get to it. Show notes and other episodes are always available at brainfuzzpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe and leave a glowing review at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher.